Our passage this morning is John chapter 6, verses 60 through 71. Please turn there in your Bible and follow along as I read. If you need a Bible, there are Bibles placed under the chairs in front of you. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Lisa, for reading the scriptures this morning. I am Ransom Kent. I'm the pastor here. I just want to welcome everybody one more time. Uh, if you're joining us online or you're here in person, we're very thankful that you are with us this morning. Uh, we are two-thirds of the way through a uh, sermon series called Broken and Beautiful about the mission and values of our church, Grace Presbyterian Church here. And um, several weeks ago, we started with the mission statement of our church. The mission statement of a church is it's uh, the local expression of the, the Great Commission. And so for us, uh, it answers the question, what are we supposed to be doing? And the answer back uh, for us is um, gathering broken people together to live out the whole gospel. That's what we're here to do in general. Now, values are a set of unique characteristics that define us as individuals and as a gathered people. So far we've heard from Steve about searching. We as a value want to be about, be people who look for the lost in the world and not carry them to this church, but what? Help bring them to Jesus. That's what we want to be about. That's a value we want to have. Last week we talked about being a welcoming place. Where does that come from? It can only come from a gospel-centered posture of humility before God. And in that posture, only in that posture, can we welcome all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds, from all kinds of situations into our community with friendship. And so today, we're going to be talking about the value nourish, nourish. The tagline or the description of nourish is this, we look uncompromisingly to Jesus as the food for our souls. We look uncompromisingly to Jesus as the food for our souls. And like all of these values, there's kind of two emphases, two facets, and one is kind of the broader church emphasis, and then there's this individual emphasis. And so the broader church emphasis for us as a church is we are committed to preach Christ and Him crucified. And that is all. That is what we're committed to. And I'm very thankful to be a part of a church, to have been called to a church where the session, the congregation, they want to hear the gospel preached. Amen? 
And so I'm thankful for that. That's not the aspect of nourish that we're going to be focusing on this morning. We're going to be looking more at the internal, individual aspect. Uh, This internal, individual aspect of nourish is a value that we hold where we say Jesus Himself, Jesus Himself is the only nourishment for our souls. That's it. There's no other alternative. And I think as Christians... Certainly, we would all affirm this. In fact, yes, we believe that. But I hope this morning, my prayer is that we can look at this passage, which is a reaction to what Jesus has said. It's been very, he's a very hard saying. And we can allow ourselves to be challenged afresh on this idea. Is Jesus the only nourishment for my soul? Let me pray. Lord, thank You for the opportunity once again to preach Christ and Him crucified. I pray that that would be the case this morning, that the Gospel would ring true to the words that You have given me. I pray that legalism would not be in this sermon, but, uh, nor license, but the Gospel, where we have nothing and You give everything. And from there we worship. So I pray this morning that we would be challenged, refreshed, convicted, encouraged, exhorted, myself included. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's talk about context here. So Jesus, just a few chapters before in John, has fed the 5,000. From five loaves and three fishes, He fed 5,000 men plus women and children. This is a miraculous event. And what happens after that, I call a feeding frenzy. So people are hearing about this, the bread man. They're like, oh my goodness, there's this man who can multiply food. And they want to be around that. And in fact, after just before the passage that we're going to look at today, Jesus calls them out on this. He says, listen, you're not following me because of who I am or because you saw signs. You're following me because you want to fill your bellies. And he gives this, uh, this kind of rebuke or exhortation. He says to them, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him God the Father has set his seal. Uh, And so what's interesting is by the response of the people, you understand that they're still thinking physically. Jesus uses this phrase, the food that endures. And they're thinking something like an everlasting gobstopper or something. They think, my goodness, food that never runs out? I'm in. I want that. I want that food. And so they ask him, how do we work for the food that endures? And Jesus responds, believe. And they say, okay, if we got to just believe to get this food that never runs out, show us a sign. Show us a sign, Jesus. You know, something like feeding 5,000 people. I don't know, I don't know, something like that. But they say, you know what? Do the one that Moses did. Do the manna one. Do the one where Moses gave our fathers food in the desert. They're still thinking physically. Another food miracle, please. And Jesus, in his response, we actually read uh, part of his response in our confession of faith this morning, morning, But he again corrects them. He he basically says, listen, Moses didn't give you food. Moses didn't do that. God gave you food. God gave you food. And then he responds with the, the confession of faith. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. In other words, I don't need a mediator like Moses. I am directly from God, and I am what you need. Not what Moses gave you, not who Moses is. I am greater than Moses. I come directly from God. Well, this goes over like a lead balloon. They do not like this statement. They don't like the idea that Jesus is saying that he is greater than Moses. They don't like the idea that he is saying, no, I will not do the manna one. I won't do that miracle. 
And so, in the passage just preceding verse 60, Jesus escalates the conversation. Here's what Jesus says in response to their grumbling about him declaring his, his status as greater than Moses. He says to them this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Well, this is the last straw. Okay, you don't want to do the manna one? Fine. You want to, you want to down talk Moses, but you're talking about cannibalism? They take him literally at his word, and they're disgusted by this. They're still in that physical mindset. They're still in that physical mindset. Their doubt was caused, their doubt caused, excuse me, their doubt in who Jesus was caused their disbelief and misunderstanding. They didn't believe that he was the Son of Man. They didn't believe that he was directly from God. They didn't believe that he was God in the flesh. And so when he says these things, they don't understand. They don't believe. They won't accept. So before we make the same error, let's talk about what eating is. We're not, so if you're, if you're thinking this morning, great, I showed up at Cannibal Church, okay? No, calm down for a second. Uh, this is not cannibalism, all right? Jesus is not saying he's going to portion up his body and feed it to the masses. In fact, those of you who might be going there, this is not necessarily a direct reference to the Lord's Supper. It's, it can be connected, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. I think St. Augustine puts it most simply, he says, believing is eating. Believing is eating. And this imagery is, is not new to Scripture. It's, it's throughout the Old Testament. Here's a couple of examples. Some of you will recognize this passage. It comes from Deuteronomy, but Jesus quotes it to the devil at his temptation when, when Jesus has not eaten for 40 days and the devil says, here's some rocks, turn it into bread. Here's, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8. And here's Moses speaking to the Israelites. And he humbled you, Israelites, and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. And why did he do that? Here's what Moses says, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You see, nourishment, feeding, eating comes from believing what God has to say. Jeremiah 15, a very good example of this. Jeremiah talking to God, says, Your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and a delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. You see, eating is believing. Believing is eating. And so what Jesus is telling the crowd is, believe in who I am. Believe in what I am doing, what I have done, and what I will do. And so for us, church, one cannot feed on Christ. We can't feed on Christ unless we feed on His words. Do you see the connection? We can't, believe, we can't separate believing in Jesus and believing in what He says. And so this morning, we're going to look at the reactions to what Jesus has just said. This, this eat my flesh, drink my blood thing. This, hey, believe in me and you'll have the food that endures to eternity. There's a strong reaction on both sides. And so we're going to concern ourselves this morning with those reactions. Why? Because much like this ancient audience, there are probably, and I hope, many listening who are challenged by these ideas. That, we, that, that our nourishment only comes from Christ. Excuse me. Excuse me. You see, Jesus 
to those who are not in him is distasteful. He's distasteful. The truth of Jesus is foolishness, if not offensive to the world. And so we'll address that reaction this morning. And to us who are followers of Christ, this passage is very clear to the outcome of what we should do with Christ's words. And so that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at these reactions and hopefully be challenged by them. I've got three descriptions of Jesus' words. The first one is that Jesus' words are hard. Look at verses 60 through 62. First, verse 60. When many of the disciples heard this, so this eating of flesh and blood, along with, I am better than Moses, along with, no, I will not do the manna miracle, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? This hard saying language means it takes great mental effort to endure hearing this. And so it's not about cognizant ability, how smart you are, how smart they were. It's about hearing it and wanting to hear it versus not wanting to hear it. They don't want to hear these things. It goes on to say, who can listen? Now, this is not just physical hearing. This word means to comply. So in other words, I don't like what he's saying. Who wants to comply to that? Who wants to do that? See, Christ, to those who do not accept Him, is hard to mentally accept. Again, we're not talking about intelligence or ability to factually understand. We're talking about faithful to believe. For those who are not in Christ, it is impossible to believe what Christ has to say. But this passage is not only drawing attention to this, this kind of uh, uh, polarized reaction. It's, drawing, it's kind of connecting the difference between mental comprehension and heart devotion. So mental comprehension is able to say, the Bible says Jesus is God. The Bible says Jesus is God. That is a factual statement. You don't need the Holy Spirit in you to make that statement or to think that that's true, that the Bible says something about Jesus. But what is heart devotion? Heart devotion sounds like this. Jesus is my Lord and my God. And there's a difference between those two things. Think about this. He says as he in verse 64 and 70 and 71, there are disciples following him that Jesus knows. Say, we're with Jesus, but they do not believe. They have the mental acceptance. They don't have the heart devotion. And so to say you believe, but not submit in increasing obedience to his words is no different than disbelief outright. So what are the hard words? What are the hard words? What about this saying is hard? Then it was that Jesus was from God that offended people. Uh, that Jesus was greater than Moses that offended people. And, and that, that they should eat his flesh. That was just ridiculous. Why would he say something like that? Well, We see in verses 61 and 62 that they haven't heard anything yet. Jesus says this, what is the offense now from Christ? Jesus says, knowing in himself that disciples were grumbling, do you take offense at this? And then he says, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The Gospel, what he's talking about is the offense of his ascension. What is his ascension? It's his humiliation on the cross. That's where the ascension of Christ begins. What if you were to see me ascend back to where I'm, where I'm from? Would you be offended then? And the answer is yes. Christ and Him crucified is the hardest truth in history. The hardest truth in history. It's not easy 
nor is it possible to accept without the power of the Spirit waking up our hearts. It's glorious to those who are called. It's detestable to those who are not. So let's take a moment. What is so offensive about the Gospel, we might be thinking? What's so offensive about it? Let's let's run through some facets of the Gospel and think from, from the worldly perspective how this might be seen as offensive. So first of all, God is Creator. That's... That's one of the foundational truths of the Gospel, that God created us for Himself. That means that He has the right to say what is right. He is justice. He is love. And there's no escaping serving God. Beyond that, there's this thing that happens that creates ongoing human weakness and need. Such such need that, that the Bible describes it as spiritual death. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. There's nothing in you that's operating correctly. Every part of you, human being, is broken and dysfunctioning. And so we're not able to do this life on our own. We're not sufficient to save ourselves. There's not even a little glimmer of good that resides in us. You see how this might be offensive? Even the redeeming part, which comes next, is an assault on human autonomy. Think about this. God and His gracious love came to us and rescued us. We were unable to rescue ourselves. He was able. And without asking, what did He do? He sent Jesus Christ to face the punishment we deserved. He didn't ask me to do that. He opened the door for us by taking our punishment. Now this message from a humanistic perspective might seem nonsensical, maybe even worthless. Because why? We want to have power in ourselves. We want to be able in ourselves. I don't need someone standing up for me before God. My works are good enough. That's the human spirit. I can do it. I'm not going through this so that we have compassion in a sense that that gives a pass. Calvin calls this the awful wickedness of unbelief. That means that this is serious. Unbelief is serious. And so a rejection of Christ is an acceptance of our own work before God. And many people would say, well, good. Well, good. But God, His heart breaks over this truth. His heart breaks over this truth. Our hearts should break too. This is the greatest and ultimate tragedy that there is a free and available salvation and many say, no, thank you. I've got it. But before we look down our noses, Christian, I think we ought to consider this truth ourselves. Because the offensive words of Christ don't always create this kind of polarized, loud reaction. Many times, disbelief in what Jesus has to say, it, it, it comes out as a result, it results in indifference. Or what I call unanalyzed discontent. Kind of like, well, I don't like that very much, so I'm just not going to think about it. Right? I don't like that very much, so I'm just going to go ahead and just brush over that truth in Scripture. We'll just act like it's not there. You see, I'm convinced myself all of us Christians, we are at peace with our unbelief. We're at peace with it. We're actually very sneaky in our aversion to the truth that we don't like. Oh, well, here's an explanation how that works now, blah, 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 right? We, we do that. We all, at one point or another, we live our lives in quiet 
stubborn rejection of God's word. In fact, here's the deal. None of us, who's in heaven? Anybody here? Some of you are sleeping. Maybe you're dead. I don't know, but you can't raise your hand. So if you're not in heaven, so guess what? All of us in some way or another, we are right now in some form of quiet, stubborn rebellion against something God is teaching us, myself included. I was talking about this idea with some members this week and the idea of like being offended by what the scriptures have to say. And and here's the reality. We ought to be offended by the scriptures at times. We ought to be. It ought to rub against something in our life that's wrong. And so talking about what do we do about that, the first thing that, I, that we kind of came to the conclusion was we should ask why. Why do I feel offended by this? Maybe it's a misunderstanding of what Scripture's having to say. But more than likely, there's something inside me that believes something that is being assaulted by what the truth of Scripture has to say. And so the next question we have to ask after we ask why is, how am I wrong? How am I wrong? You see, Scripture is not out of touch. It's not old-fashioned. It doesn't need to be supplemented or updated by science or, or what's going on in our culture. Here's the real problem. You and me, we believe lies. We believe lies. And guess what? It goes a little further than that. We love them. <laughs> like these people who thought that, that Moses gave the bread. That's not true. You can go to the scriptures and see that's not true, but they loved that idea that Moses was this great prophet. He was, and he had provided bread for their fathers and mothers in the desert. And that's not how it went down. And when Jesus said, Moses didn't give them bread, God did. They're saying, oh, well, that's great, Jesus. Thank you for that. They loved a lie. We do the same. We love lies. And when the Christ in his word confronts those things, it hurts. It's offensive. It's difficult. But we shouldn't react with indifference, like, well, I don't know. Or that unanalyzed discontent. Well, I don't like it, but I'm sure there's an explanation we'll find out later. We should let ourselves be subjected to the truth. And so here's kind of a, <clears throat> a summary of, 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 of why Jesus' words are hard and our response to them. Rejection, disobedience, or ignoring Christ's words, all of those things are the same thing. And what is that thing? It is the statement that Christ is not worthy of being heard. All those categories, even though it's hard. Now, why are the sayings of Jesus at times so hard? And the reality is because they're true. (laughs) That's why they're hard. If they weren't true, it wouldn't be hard. But because Jesus' words are true and they rub against the lies in our life, they become difficult. Um, Allow your pastor to stretch his sarcasm muscle for a moment. Um, I was thinking this week, what are some hard truths that our society tells us are hard truths. So I went to the, the source. I think you know all where I went. I went to lifehack.org, okay, which I do most of my sermon prep from there. So um, I don't, in case you're listening. Um, so here's seven hard truths. I hope you're ready, Jonathan. These are mostly for you, okay? All right, listen. <clears throat> Number one, no one is going to fix you. Wow, right to the gut, okay? Oh, this one's hard. Life will never be perfect. Oh, man, that is tough. Here's another one. You might fail, in parentheses, a lot. I, I thought I wouldn't. That's really a hard truth. Thank you. Um, the past is already written. Okay. 
Tomorrow is not guaranteed. I bet you thought it was, Anna Grace. Tomorrow, guaranteed. Nope. Aha! Lifehack.org, gotcha. Okay. Just because you're busy doesn't mean you're accomplishing something. Okay, well, that's true. You have more time than you think you do. So listen, though, I, I say sarcasm because are those really that hard? I mean, they're true, sort of. Here's the, how's this for a, a hard truth? This is a biblical truth. This is where Jesus goes next in the passage. Compare what you just heard to this. Outside Christ, all is death. <laughs> Compare what you just heard to that truth. Now look at verse 63. This is where we get this. Jesus says this. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. His words are spirit and life. What does that mean? He says spirit. What that means is his words aren't just knowledge or good tidbits. No, they are loaded with God's power. When Jesus speaks, it's God's power. It's from the Spirit. It's life. Spiritual life. Again, Jesus is the, the, the crowd is stuck in this kind of they're stuck on the physical, and Jesus is using physical terms to describe spiritual realities. And so, sure, Jesus is essential to physical life. We learn that from, the, from Colossians. Everything was made for him and through him. But what he's saying here in verse 63 is this I, Jesus, am essential, essential to participation in the experience of eternal spiritual life. Essential. Outside Christ, all is death, is what he's saying. The flesh is no help. When we pursue alternative sources of information, folks, and we look to them as truth above and beyond what Christ has to say, we are pursuing idols. That's what it is. We're pursuing idols. When Jesus says the flesh is no help at all, it means everything that you pursue as truth outside of me, it cannot help you. I was in the community Bible reading plan this week and I was going through Jeremiah and two passages kind of highlight this. One, I'll, I'll just summarize them. The Judeans had ignored God's Word for years and years and years and finally God sends the message through Jeremiah and He basically says, listen, they've been worshiping the sun, moon, and stars. You know what the sun is good for? Nothing much than bleaching dead bones. So worship the sun. Go for it. All you'll get are your bones spread before the sun and bleached dry. Later, he says this, when the wrath of God comes and they look to their idols, what is the verdict in Jeremiah 11? But the idols that they serve cannot save them in the time of, our trou of their troubles. So church, the question that I was asking myself and I'm asking us this morning is what good will alternative food sources do to those who seek them? By food sources, I mean beliefs, truths, our society, our culture offers, offers us so many alternative, it's almost an infinite number of worldviews. And how do they package them? As tools to help supplement Scripture, as tools and, and, and things that can help build up and understand Scripture better. But here's the reality. They're additives, and they lead to nothing but bleached bones. They lead to death. We must look to Christ alone in an uncompromising manner for truth. Jesus' words are hard, and they're true. But like the disciples, there's a mixture of reactions. Some find them offensive. Christ is polarizing. Look at verses 64 through 66. 
Jesus declares that to be true to the crowd he's talking to. He says, there are some of you who do not believe. Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it would be that would betray him. Speaking of Judas, he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And look at the reaction of many of his disciples. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Upon hearing the hard truths, they chose to walk away. Think about the rich young man. The rich young man comes to Jesus, great teacher, how might I have eternal life? And Jesus has this conversation that ends with Jesus putting his knuckle right in the spot of his idolatry. Sell everything and follow me. And what happens? As far as we know, we don't know what happened after this, but in that moment, the, the, the rich young man looked at his idol and he looked at what Jesus was offering him, and he had great sorrow. I can't do that. That's too much. And he walked away. Much is the same here with these folks. And just like the rich young man, it broke Jesus' heart to see him walk away. I'm sure it breaks Jesus' heart here the same way. But it's not all negative. I love the response of the 12, I suppose the 11. Because for those who are disciples already or those who are being called by Christ, even though Jesus' words are hard and true, they are so attractive. They're so attractive. Look at verses 67 through 69. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Do you hear the desperation and the helplessness in that, that question? Where else should we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That should be our echo this morning as disciples. Lord, to whom shall we go? This should be our prayer. Lord, to whom shall we go? You, you alone, have the words of eternal life. I immediately thought of Psalm 121. It starts off with, I look to the hills. Where does my help come from? He's not looking for Jesus to ride over the hills. He's looking for human help. And guess what? No one comes. Nobody comes. And then he declares this, my help comes from the Lord. This is the same thing. The disciples are looking elsewhere. Well, there's, there's nothing but death besides Christ. And so where must I go? To Jesus, the source. The source of good. The source of nourishment. So to those of you this morning, if you are lost, you're not in Christ, I want, to, I want you to hear this good news. Christ is the way to be found. If you want to be found this morning, that's only possible in Jesus Christ. He's the single solitary power to save. There's no other religious theory. There's no other uh, worldview that can bring about the salvation of Jesus Christ. And so you might be asking, what must I do? You must echo the, the confession of Peter. Lord, you have the words of eternal life. There's nowhere else to turn but to Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This passage, in the end, it answers a question. What is eternal life? It answers that question. What is eternal life? And here's what it is. It's a relationship. It's a relationship. Look at verse 69. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. It's just like Jesus prays in John 17, and he gives a very clear definition. And this is eternal life that they know you, speaking to God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you, whom you have sent. What is eternal life? 
It's a living, breathing, knowing, sustaining, nourishing, familiar relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the food that endures to eternity. Knowing Jesus, being known by Him, submitting yourself to Him, allowing Him to change you. You see, that relationship is something that gloriously transforms us, not just after we die, but it starts right now. The Spirit is in us. Jesus is with us. He never departs from us. And he's, he, he changes us from the inside out. This relationship is the only thing that helps us preserve, per, persevere in hope in this life of difficulty because that's what it is. We live amongst death. And Jesus Christ knowing Him, being with Him, listening to Him, receiving from Him is eternal life. Christian, I'm saying this to myself, and I think many of you are like me. Listen, too many of us are starving ourselves from the words of eternal life. We're starving ourselves. Oh, well, that seems nice. I like that. Well, that seems nice. I like that. There's only one place to go for nourishment. Jesus Christ and His Gospel. We spend so much time on other things. So what should our prayer be? To whom shall we go? And that desperate helpless voice of Peter. We look around, there's, there's, not, there's nothing else. And so I want to take the kind of takeaway truth and I put it both in a positive and a negative way this morning. And so I want you to hear this. We're going to start with the negative. Quoting John Calvin, everywhere but Christ is nothing but death. Everywhere but Christ is nothing but death. Think about that. How often do we go everywhere but Christ? And what do we get for it? Death. Here's the positive. Christ is the only source of true life. And praise God. Think about this. We have access to that relationship. We don't have to do anything. It's given to us freely through His cross. God, seeing us in our inability, sent Jesus Christ. He broke His body. He shed His blood. Why? So that we might have the one only true source of eternal life. And what is great is that weekly we have an opportunity to renew that relationship. That's what we're going to do right now through the Lord's Supper. This bread in the scheme of things is pretty meaningless. It's some ingredients mixed together. I don't know, like water, flour, salt. I don't know, eggs there? Um, yeast, right? And they mix it together and they cook it up and it's a roll. That's what we have. And so there, there's nothing magical about this bread. There's nothing that's going to magically happen while, because we eat this particular bread. But here's the reality. Jesus Christ is the bread from heaven. And He's promised that He is here with us by the power of the Spirit. And He also promises that as we participate in this meal like we are physically nourished, we are also spiritually nourished just because He's here. So this morning, as we participate in the Lord's Supper, let us just soak in the fact that we are present with Jesus Christ, the only source of nourishment. So who should participate this morning? The, the Bible says that those who recognize that they are incapable, I cannot save myself, 
And they also recognize that Jesus is the bread of heaven. He's the only source of nourishment. He's the only source of salvation. And they have publicly professed that. They've been baptized. They've confessed their sins. They're made worthy, not because of what they have done or the list of accomplishments that they have. They're made worthy because they rest in Jesus Christ. That's why. That's how. If you this morning don't believe those things, Maybe they're nonsense. Maybe they're offensive. Maybe you're just on the fence. But if you can't declare that those things are true, or if you have at one point declared those things true, but you have a a sin in your life, you refuse to confess. You know what that is? That is a rejection of Jesus' words. Saying, no, I will not listen to that truth. The Bible makes it clear in in 1 Corinthians 11 that both of those cases are reason to to choose to, to not participate. And so I'd encourage that analysis of yourself this morning. What we're gonna do here for just a moment, silently, is we're going to confess our sins. Let's take a moment, and let's just be real. God knows anyway. (laughs) Let's be real with ourselves before God, the things we have done, and let him wrap his loving arms of forgiveness around you. Then after that, I'll give you some time to do that. I'll bring us back together with a prayer of blessing and assurance, and we'll uh, distribute and have the Lord's Supper together. So let's take a few moments and pray quietly.